0: Hello again. This is The Laughing Satirist with Crobson's Syndrome, an autobiographical sketch by Anthony Crobson, MD, the greatest pharmaceutical inventor and marketer of all time. Dr. Crobson invented Crobson's Syndrome to have a disease to treat with Crobson's Elixir, a combination of stimulants he created that became the most widely prescribed medication in history. A marketing genius, he created the Ask Your Doctor ads to avoid disclosing its alarming side effects. He is best known for warning consumers not to crush and sniff his popular painkiller pellets, thereby suggesting that crushing the pellets produced an overwhelming high. Here's his story, Crobson Syndrome. The diagnosis of Crobson's syndrome was alarming, but not unexpected. After all, I am Anthony Crobson, M.D., and I invented the syndrome when I was strapped for cash after my second marriage fell apart 35 years ago. Like many physicians, I enjoyed experimenting with pharmaceutical samples. Many evenings, when I stayed late in the office waiting for my nurse to put her children to bed before joining me at a motel off the interstate, I worked on a hangover remedy that combined caffeine, amphetamines, and aspirin. Success, however, eluded me, both in my experiments and in my married life. Joyce discovered my indiscretions when she checked into the same motel with a tennis partner. I was in the classic middle-aged doctor's dilemma. High income, higher taxes, and alimony for two wives and child support for five children that reduced me to one night a month at the motel. Frustrated, I comforted myself with bourbon, making discovery of a fast-acting hangover remedy critical. One night, frustrated and furious over Joyce's demand for more alimony, I angrily sprinkled synthetic estrogen, the female male sex hormone, into the test tube and drank the stuff off. The next morning, I awakened refreshed, reinvigorated, and anxious to get to the office for the first time in months. My nurse noticed the change when I asked her to meet me that night at the motel, just 10 days after our last session. Together, we put away a fifth of cheap bourbon split a test tube of Cropson's elixir and bound it out of the bed the next morning in time for her to get home and make breakfast for the kids. Clinical trials were the next step. Most physicians who experiment with drugs try to sell the big pharmaceutical companies on the basis of idiosyncratic studies, that is, their own personal experience. Unless the physician's lawyers have locked the drug companies into ironclad non disclosure agreements. The companies conduct the clinical trials, misrepresent the results of the doctor, then use the same studies to push the drug through the FDA under a new name, and often as a remedy for a different disorder. To avoid this problem, I conducted clinical trials on my own patients who suffered from alcohol related illnesses. The results were startling. There were so many cures that my patient load dropped alarmingly, prompting me to bring my trials to an early conclusion. When I took my formula to Big Pharma, I took my lawyer and a stenographer along too, just to be sure there were no misunderstandings. We teased them into signing the non-disclosure by letting them review my clinical trials which showed the highest effectiveness of any medication ever submitted to the FDA. I thought it was a done deal, until the vice president for new products started to laugh. It won't sell, he said. The public will never go for it. Why not, I demanded. Would you want to buy a hangover remedy in front of your family and friends at the local pharmacy, he said. Nice try, doc. Come back when you have something we can move. That's when I had my second stroke of genius. Don't call it a hangover remedy, I said. Call it a treatment for Crobson syndrome. What the hell's that, he demanded. Look in the next edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, I replied. In fact, it took me nearly eight months to search the medical literature and document the appearance of an alarming new syndrome for which there was no known treatment or cure. Within weeks of publication, Medicare approved Crobson's syndrome for compensation, confident that without a remedy, no claim would ever be paid. That was all I needed to set off a bidding war among the country's pharmaceutical giants and obtain the largest advance and best license agreement in the industry's history. With the proceeds, I hired enough lawyers to bury Joyce, close my practice, and buy my nurse a house in the suburbs, thereby freeing myself to pursue more attractive opportunities in my new position as Chief of Pharmaceutical Research at the winning bidder. I had so much money that I allowed the manufacturer to persuade me to take most of my license fee in stock. This proved to be a mistake when I learned the dangers of competition. As other drug companies brought out knockoffs on our product, the stock swooned. Traders amassed huge short positions, gloating over our coming demise. Again, my genius responded to pressure. I published another article in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled, Crobson's Syndrome Revisited. In which I reported alarming instances of depression and schizophrenia among longtime sufferers. As the medical world raised its hands in anguish, I added an antidepressant plus one of the new generation antipsychotics to the formula. The price of our stock shot through the roof as the shorts covered their positions. This time, however, I had sense enough to diversify and to negotiate a new license agreement where cash was king, Crobson's Magic Elixir, the brand name for diethyl amphetamine, Citralpram, Risperidone, EnO alkalide, was the largest-selling prescription drug in the world until Lipitor and Viagra came along. To increase sales even more, I developed a series of television commercials set in a doctor's office. As the camera zoomed in through a waiting room full of terrified patients, an attractive nurse smiled, something they almost never do, and announced, there's finally something for Crobson syndrome. Ask your doctor. Then she turned to a well-dressed man and said, Mr. Berkeley, the doctor will see you now. Berkeley flashed a superior smile at the other denizens of the waiting room and followed her through the door to the doctor's office, so close that I thought he was going to pat her on the butt. That one infomercial revolutionized pharmaceutical advertising. By not naming the medication, we did not have to state the elixir side effects that were, in some cases, alarming. Soon, every company in the industry was running Ask Your Doctor ads. Doctors' offices swelled with self-diagnosed patients, demanding more and more pharmaceuticals until the country was awash in them. Medicare nearly went bankrupt, and operators of our buses to Canada for drug-buying excursions were making more money than heart surgeons. The income disparity raised serious concern in the medical profession. Then the industry figured out that where there was a competing product for an ask-your-doctor drug, the doctor might prescribe the competitor's product. So the whole system came crashing down, and the country was treated the shots of Bob Dole staring blankly at the camera, while an offstage voice warned of the dangers of night sweats, insomnia, incontinence, involuntary bowel movements, and four-hour erections. Unfortunately, many users interpreted the last warning as a promise, leading to so many product liability suits that the manufacturer had to pull the commercial. My Name the Product campaign won me my first Emmy for Best CEO in the 60-second or under classification. Although reciting all the side effects took a highly skilled actor nearly the entire 60 seconds, I kept the audience focused on me rather than on that litany of horribles. Dressed in a long black coat and stovepipe hat, I stood on a medicine wagon with a genuine Cherokee Indian in tribal costume at the Iowa State Fair, hawking Cobson's elixir along with a special tool for slicing apples or dicing the capsules thrown in for the first hundred buyers. The offer also applied to the first 100,000 callers in the TV ad. When the side effects voiceover started, I began a dialogue with a 90-year-old woman whose only concern was that the medication not contain alcohol. The chief and I assured her that it did not, each drinking a bottle and going through our version of a roadside sobriety test to prove the point. God bless you, Mr. Crobson, she said, just as the voiceover reached the final frightening events reported by disgruntled users. Then, like a magician performing card tricks, I not only diverted the audience from side effects to a long-forgotten bit of Americana, but also created the impression that our competitors' products were alcohol-based. The competition never recovered, and I was asked to become the television spokesperson for five insurance companies, three hedge funds, the National Republican Party, and Bob Jones University. Doctors could not write prescriptions fast enough for Cropson's elixir, and that became the limiting factor for our company's growth. Approaching 70, I came up with the greatest marketing device the pharmaceutical industry ever saw, go-off prescription. With its efficacy so well established and its side effects so well known, there was no longer any need for Crobson's elixir to be stifled in the paternal embrace of the FDA. At least that's what we got the president to believe. As an over-the-counter drug, Crobson's elixir flew off the shelves of every drugstore, supermarket, and carryout in the country. Whenever sales slacked, I added something new, such as a colon cleansing feature, to keep up with the new generation's lifestyle. Some long-time users complained about being caught, so to speak, between Crobson's and Depends. To stop a mass defection to aspirin, we brought out Crobson's Elixir Classic, complete with a picture of the old lady at the fair kissing my cheek, and Crobson's Fortified, with a picture of an anorexic actress, and a stern warning not to eat oysters before ingesting. By suggesting that Crobson's Fortified was helpful with weight loss, we captured a new generation of users and increased sales dramatically. My last year as CEO, I was profiled in both Forbes and Fortune as America's most admired pharmaceutical executive. Strange as it may seem, I had not taken Crobson's Elixir, either classic or fortified, in years. I amused myself with testing our firm's new line of psychotropic medications. Unlike other manufacturers who feared side effects more than failure, I was always looking for some visual or auditory effect that would encourage users to take their medicine regardless of its efficacy for the condition for which it was prescribed. Great science sometimes proceeds from accident to invention. Alexander Bell called for Watson over a vibrating electric wire and the telephone was born. Marie Curie was the first to find a practical application for x-rays and discovered they also cause cancer. Our lab was working on a painkiller less effective than aspirin. Management was about to kill the project when a technician dropped a sample and it shattered into dust on the lab floor. When she bent over to wipe it up, she inhaled and had the best high she had ever experienced in pharmaceutical research. Small-minded investigators would have considered that an impediment, but I considered it an opportunity. How will anyone know they have to inhale it, the vice president of marketing demanded. We can't put that in the product insert. Put in a warning against breaking it up and snorting it, I said. The consuming public will get the message. In a consumer society, addiction is a benefit to be sought, not something to be feared. It insulates the seller from the ups and downs of a free market economy. There is only one serious issue with addictive products, market share. Any new product must of necessity replace earlier, less addictive ones, or bring in a new class of users. The demographics for a pain pill that gave an instant high were unlimited. When I explained it that way to the president, the product sailed through the FDA approval process. Within weeks of its introduction, an army of physicians was cranking out prescriptions, and the plant was running 24-7, competing successfully against the meth labs that were springing up all over the country. America's war on illegal drugs started to turn the corner as users and addicts turned from street drugs to duly approved pharmaceutical products. Six months after the product was launched, the Medellin cartel was bankrupt and the Mexican drug lords were scrambling to get into offshore oil production. I will never forget that glorious day when the president invited me to the Rose Garden, where he awarded me the Medal of Freedom for finding a market solution to the illegal drug problem. Three days later, he disbanded the Drug Enforcement Administration and cut the FBI's budget 50%. The Coast Guard was redeployed from the drug lanes of the Caribbean and the west coast of South America to Alaska to stop the native population from depleting the whale supply by harpooning them from open boats. I was the first guest Larry Kudlow ever kissed. No one, however, has yet reached the stars, either by spaceship or hallucinogen. If I had another lifetime, I would spend it looking for a pharmaceutical fountain of youth. Ponce de Leon nearly died in the floor of the swamps on his failed quest. But with enough venture capital, I could have trekked through the jungle and climbed the mountain until I, too, stood silent upon that peak in Darien. I tried to share that vision with my administrative assistant when she found me collapsed over my desk, but I could not speak. I could not move anything except my right hand, and that only in a vague, flapping gesture. Now I lie alone in a private room in the same hospital where I once fretted about alimony and child support. I thought it was obvious that I had a stroke, but nothing is obvious in medicine anymore. My physician smiled as he pronounced his diagnosis, Crobson's syndrome. Instead of a few nips of Crobson's classic, however, they are wheeling me into surgery. My career in pharmaceuticals made me forget the surgical bias of American medicine. Nothing is more frightening to a surgeon than a medication that replaces him. Faced with a worse threat to their income than a single-payer national health system, surgeons now treated Hobson's syndrome, by removing several organs no longer deemed essential in the elderly. Because I can't speak, I have no say in what happens to me now. I can feel the prick on the back of my hand as the anesthesiologist puts in his line. Would you prefer Crobson's Classic or Crobson's Fortified Doctor, he asked politely. When I don't respond, the nurse takes my free hand and whispers, don't be afraid. Many of our patients like going to sleep better than waking up. I doubt I will be able to compare the two experiences. And here his story ends. We can only surmise that Dr. Cromson did not f- recover fully from his surgery. This story first appeared on the Wordplay site where it won some kind of an award. I can't imagine for what. Maybe you can find more about it on the author's website, www.fredmcgavern.com. Our next episode, A Killer App, is a satire of where apps can take us when backed by unlimited venture capital and unsuspecting users. A man invents a killer app to ring your phone when your scrambled eggs are done. Then parleys it into an app to predict the weather, and then the end of the world. Goodbye until then. Hello again. This is the laughing satirist with Cropson syndrome. An autobiographical sketch by Anthony Crobson, MD, the greatest pharmaceutical inventor and marketer of all time. Dr. Crobson invented Crobson's syndrome to have a disease to treat with Crobson's elixir, a combination of stimulants he created that became the most widely prescribed medication in history. A marketing genius, he created the Ask Your Doctor ads to avoid disclosing its alarming side effects. He is best known for warning consumers not to crush and sniff his popular painkiller pellets, thereby suggesting that crushing the pellets produced an overwhelming high. Here's his story, Crobson's syndrome. The diagnosis of Crobson's syndrome was alarming but not unexpected. After all, I am Anthony Cropson, M.D., and I invented the syndrome when I was strapped for cash after my second marriage fell apart 35 years ago. Like many physicians, I enjoyed experimenting with pharmaceutical samples. Many evenings, when I stayed late in the office waiting for my nurse to put her children to bed before joining me at a motel off the interstate. I worked on a hangover remedy that combined caffeine, amphetamines, and aspirin. Success, however, eluded me, both in my experiments and in my married life. Joyce discovered my indiscretions when she checked into the same motel with a tennis partner. I was in the classic middle-aged doctor's dilemma. High income, higher taxes, and alimony for two wives and child support for five children that reduced me to one night a month at the motel. Frustrated, I comforted myself with bourbon, making discovery of a fast-acting hangover remedy critical. One night, frustrated and furious over Joyce's demand for ever more alimony, I angrily sprinkled synthetic estrogen, the female male sex hormone, into the test tube and drank the stuff off. The next morning I awakened refreshed, reinvigorated and anxious to get to the office for the first time in months. My nurse noticed the change when I asked her to meet me that night at the motel just 10 days after our last session. Together, we put away a fifth of cheap bourbon, split a test tube of Cropson's elixir, and bounded out of the bed the next morning in time for her to get home and make breakfast for the kids. Clinical trials were the next step. Most physicians who experiment with drugs try to sell the big pharmaceutical companies on the basis of idiosyncratic studies, that is, their own personal experience. Unless the physician's lawyers have locked the drug companies into ironclad non-disclosure agreements, the companies conduct the clinical trials, misrepresent the results of the doctor, then used the same studies to push the drug through the FDA under a new name and often as a remedy for a different disorder. To avoid this problem, I conducted clinical trials on my own patients who suffered from alcohol-related illnesses. The results were startling. There were so many cures that my patient load dropped alarmingly, prompting me to bring my trials to an early conclusion. When I took my formula to big pharma, I took my lawyer and a stenographer along too, just to be sure there were no misunderstandings. We teased them into signing the non-disclosure by letting them review my clinical trials, which showed the highest effectiveness of any medication ever submitted to the FDA. I thought it was a done deal, until the vice president for new products started to laugh. It won't sell, he said the public will never go for it. Why not, I demanded. Would you want to buy a hangover remedy in front of your family and friends at the local pharmacy, he said. Nice try, doc. Come back when you have something we can move. That's when I had my second stroke of genius. Don't call it a hangover remedy, I said. Call it a treatment for Crobson syndrome. What the hell's that, he demanded. Look in the next edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, I replied. In fact, it took me nearly eight months to search the medical literature and document the appearance of an alarming new syndrome for which there was no known treatment or cure. Within weeks of publication, Medicare approved Crobson's syndrome for compensation, confident that without a remedy, no claim would ever be paid. That was all I needed to set off a bidding war among the country's pharmaceutical giants and obtain the largest advance and best license agreement in the industry's history. With the proceeds, I hired enough lawyers to bury Joyce, close my practice, and buy my nurse a house in the suburbs thereby freeing myself to pursue more attractive opportunities in my new position as Chief of Pharmaceutical Research at the winning bidder. I had so much money that I allowed the manufacturer to persuade me to take most of my license fee in stock. This proved to be a mistake when I learned the dangers of competition. As other drug companies brought out knockoffs on our product, the stock swooned. Traders amassed huge short positions, gloating over our coming demise. Again, my genius responded to pressure. I published another article in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled "Crobson's Syndrome Revisited, in which I reported alarming instances of depression and schizophrenia among long-time sufferers. As the medical world raised its hands in anguish, I added an antidepressant plus one of the new generation antipsychotics to the formula. The price of our stock shocked through the roof as the shorts covered their positions. This time, however, I had sense enough to diversify and to negotiate a new license agreement where cash was king. Crobson's Magic Elixir, the brand name for Diethyl amphetamine, Citalopram, Risperidone, Exenelalide was the largest-selling prescription drug in the world until Lipitor and Viagra came along. To increase sales even more, I developed a series of television commercials set in a doctor's office. As the camera zoomed in through a waiting room full of terrified patients, an attractive nurse smiled, something they almost never do, and announced, There's finally something for Crobson syndrome. Ask your doctor. Then she turned to a well-dressed man and said, Mr. Berkeley, the doctor will see you now. Berkeley flashed a superior smile at the other denizens of the waiting room, and followed her through the door to the doctor's office, so close that I thought he was going to pat her on the butt. That one infomercial revolutionized pharmaceutical advertising. By not naming the medication, we did not have to state the elixir's side effects that were, in some cases, alarming. Soon, every company in the industry was running ask-your-doctor ads. Doctors' offices swelled with self-diagnosed patients demanding more and more pharmaceuticals until the country was awash in them. Medicare nearly went bankrupt, and operators of our buses to Canada for drug-buying excursions were making more money than heart surgeons. The income disparity raised serious concern in the medical profession. Then the industry figured out that where there was a competing product for an ask-your-doctor drug, the doctor might prescribe the competitor's product. So the whole system came crashing down, and the country was treated the shots of Bob Dole staring blankly at the camera, while an offstage voice warned of the dangers of night sweats, insomnia, incontinence, involuntary bowel movements, and four-hour erections. Unfortunately, many users interpreted the last warning as a promise, leading to so many product liability suits that the manufacturer had to pull the commercial. My Name the Product campaign won me my first Emmy for best CEO in the 60 second or under classification. Although reciting all the side effects took a highly skilled actor nearly the entire 60 seconds, I kept the audience focused on me rather than on that litany of horribles. Dressed in a long black coat and stovepipe hat, I stood on a medicine wagon with a genuine Cherokee Indian in tribal costume at the Iowa State Fair, hawking Cobson's elixir along with a special tool for slicing apples or dicing the capsules thrown in for the first hundred buyers. The offer also applied to the first 100,000 callers in the TV ad. When the side effects voiceover started, I began a dialogue with a 90-year-old woman whose only concern was that the medication not contain alcohol. The chief and I assured her that it did not, each drinking a bottle and going through our version of a roadside sobriety test to prove the point. "'God bless you, Mr. Crobson,' she said, just as the voiceover reached the final frightening events reported by disgruntled users. Then, like a magician performing card tricks, I not only diverted the audience from side effects to a long-forgotten bit of Americana, but also created the impression that our competitors' products were alcohol-based. The competition never recovered, and I was asked to become the television spokesperson for five insurance companies, three hedge funds, the National Republican Party, and Bob Jones University. Doctors could not write prescriptions fast enough for Cropson's elixir, and that became the limiting factor for our company's growth. Approaching 70, I came up with the greatest marketing device the pharmaceutical industry ever saw, go-off prescription. With its efficacy so well established and its side effects so well known, there was no longer any need for Crobson's elixir to be stifled in the paternal embrace of the FDA. At least that's what we got the president to believe. As an over-the-counter drug, Crobson's elixir flew off the shelves of every drugstore, supermarket, and carryout in the country. Whenever sales slacked, I added something new, such as a colon cleansing feature, to keep up with the new generation's lifestyle. Some longtime users complained about being caught, so to speak, between Crobson's and Depends. To stop a mass defection to aspirin, we brought out Crobson's Elixir Classic, complete with a picture of the old lady at the fair kissing my cheek, and Crobson's Fortified, with a picture of an anorexic actress and a stern warning not to eat oysters before ingesting. By suggesting that Crobson's Fortified was helpful with weight loss, we captured a new generation of users and increased sales dramatically. My last year as CEO, I was profiled in both Forbes and Fortune as America's most admired pharmaceutical executive. Strange as it may seem, I had not taken Crobson's Elixir, either classic or fortified, in years. I amused myself with testing our firm's new line of psychotropic medications. Unlike other manufacturers who feared side effects more than failure, I was always looking for some visual or auditory effect that would encourage users to take their medicine regardless of its efficacy for the condition for which it was prescribed. Great science sometimes proceeds from accident to invention. Alexander Bell called for Watson over a vibrating electric wire and the telephone was born. Marie Curie was the first to find a practical application for x-rays and discovered they also cause cancer. Our lab was working on a painkiller less effective than aspirin. Management was about to kill the project when a technician dropped a sample and it shattered into dust on the lab floor. When she bent over to wipe it up, she inhaled and had the best high she had ever experienced in pharmaceutical research. Small-minded investigators would have considered that an impediment, but I considered it an opportunity. How will anyone know they have to inhale it, the vice president of marketing demanded. We can't put that in the product insert. Put in a warning against breaking it up and snorting it, I said. The consuming public will get the message. In a consumer society, addiction is a benefit to be sought, not something to be feared. It insulates the seller from the ups and downs of a free market economy. There is only one serious issue with addictive products, market share. Any new product must of necessity replace earlier less addictive ones or bring in a new class of users. The demographics for a pain pill that gave an instant high were unlimited. When I explained it that way to the president, the product sailed through the FDA approval process. Within weeks of its introduction, An army of physicians was cranking out prescriptions, and the plant was running 24-7, competing successfully against the meth labs that were springing up all over the country. America's war on illegal drugs started to turn the corner, as users and addicts turned from street drugs to duly approved pharmaceutical products. Six months after the product was launched, the metal cartel was bankrupt, and the Mexican drug lords were scrambling to get into offshore oil production. I will never forget that glorious day when the president invited me to the Rose Garden, where he awarded me the Medal of Freedom for finding a market solution to the illegal drug problem. Three days later, he disbanded the Drug Enforcement Administration and cut the FBI's budget 50%. The Coast Guard was redeployed from the drug lanes of the Caribbean and the west coast of South America to Alaska to stop the native population from depleting the whale supply by harpooning them from open boats. I was the first guest Larry Kudlow ever kissed. No one, however, has yet reached the stars, either by spaceship or hallucinogen. If I had another lifetime, I would spend it looking for a pharmaceutical fountain of youth. Ponce de Leon nearly died in the Florida of the swamps on his failed quest. But with enough venture capital, I could have trekked through the jungle and climbed the mountain until I, too, stood silent upon that peak in Darien. I tried to share that vision with my administrative assistant when she found me collapsed over my desk, but I could not speak. I could not move anything except my right hand, and that only in a vague, flapping gesture. Now I lie alone in a private room in the same hospital where I once fretted about alimony and child support. I thought it was obvious that I had a stroke, but nothing is obvious in medicine anymore. My physician smiled as he pronounced his diagnosis, Crobson's syndrome. Instead of a few nips of Crobson's classic, however, they are wheeling me into surgery. My career in pharmaceuticals made me forget the surgical bias of American medicine. Nothing is more frightening to a surgeon than a medication that replaces him. Faced with a worse threat to their income than a single-payer national health system, surgeons now treated Hobson's syndrome, by removing several organs, no longer deemed essential in the elderly. Because I can't speak, I have no say in what happens to me now. I can feel the prick on the back of my hand as the anesthesiologist puts in his line. Would you prefer Crobson's Classic or Crobson's Fortified Doctor, he asks politely. When I don't respond, the nurse takes my free hand and whispers, don't be afraid. Many of our patients like going to sleep better than waking up. I doubt I will be able to compare the two experiences. And here his story ends. We can only surmise that Dr. Cromson did not recover fully from his surgery. This story first appeared on the Wordplay site where it won some kind of an award. I can't imagine for what. Maybe you can find more about it on the author's website, www.fredmcgaverin.com. Our next episode, A Killer App, is a satire of where apps can take us when backed by unlimited venture capital and unsuspecting users. A man invents a killer app to ring your phone when your scrambled eggs are done. Then parleys it into an app to predict the weather, and then the end of the world. Goodbye until then. <laughs>